This is not available for Kojet credit. This conference will now be recorded. Well, I I want to thank you all for uh, joining us on Saturday morning for this uh, first attempt at uh, a webinar. Uh, this is uh, was Charlie's suggestion. It came out of a discussion we had, and I'm delighted that uh, that he's willing to do it. Uh, as are you. I'm delighted to have Donald Jacobson here, and uh, we will. I'll turn it over to Charlie. Uh, if this is a success, success we'll uh, be doing more in the future. So, Charlie, it's yours. All right, thank you. And and feel free to turn your cameras on if you'd like, or turn them off. Feel free to ask questions. If um, if you're not actively asking questions, you might want to consider muting yourself. Uh, this is relatively informal, uh, and um, it's. As it's titled, it's a roundtable. I mean, we do have a lot of issues uh, that come up around the state. Uh, so this is intended as a forum where we can uh, talk through these. Uh, I will go ahead. I, I know there were a few people who couldn't be here this morning, but are interested in watching this uh, later. Uh, so we will go ahead and upload it to YouTube. Um, if there are discussions that you would rather not have recorded, let me know and I can turn the recorder off. So first we'll start with a few breaking newses. Um, uh, and this still, we still get a lot of questions about the peremptory change of judge, uh, but it, it has returned for cases filed or remanded on or after April 1. Uh, so if a case was filed before April, and, and that's just a great date, by the way, uh, for a case that was filed before April 1, uh, there's still no peremptory change of judge uh, except for the justice courts, uh, for the Pima County Consolidated Courts, because the Tucson Consolidated Court is not a single court judge. All of the other justice courts are consider considered single court judges. Um, all municipal courts with less than three magistrates, and then those um, uh, superior courts that are listed. Uh, so uh, once again, just keep in mind that there, there are no uh, peremptory changes of judge uh, on, uh, for those places for cases filed um, on, uh, before April 1st. Uh, but we always have the change of judge for, um, uh, for bias. Or prejudice. Keep in mind that that bias or prejudice has to arise from an extrajudicial source and not from something that uh, the judge has done in the case. Any questions about the peremptory change of judge? All right, the next one. For some reason, the legislature made this an emergency adoption. I, I, John, do you get a lot of cockfighting down in Pima County? I mean, I, I don't really know why this uh, was worthy of an emergency adoption, uh, but we do have a new class one misdemeanor for a person who knowingly causes, allows, or assists a minor to attend an animal fight or cockfight or to be present at any place or building where preparations are being made for an exhibition of animal fighting or cockfighting. I, I, I have no idea why that was an emergency adoption. 
Charles, I actually went back and watched the video from the legislative hearings. I couldn't figure out why it was an emergency either. It, did, it didn't seem to even come up. So <laughs> uh, I, I have no I mean, it, it, it bans a minor from attending something that's already illegal. So. It's a major tourist attraction here in Ajo. <laughs> All right. Now, the next one, uh, this isn't breaking news, but this is a reminder uh, that last year the legislature did adopt Senate Bill 1294, which will go into effect on January 1, 2023. Uh, defendants can apply to have their records sealed, and judges will be required to mention this on the record when sentencing. So we're going to have to uh, amend our uh, scripts when we sentence. We'll have to amend our forms. Uh, what what I suggest we're going to do is um, create an application to set aside your conviction that would include uh, the certificate of second chance and uh, the uh, request to seal records. And Don, you said you had. Yeah. Yeah, Charles, uh, uh, just to let you know, we are, uh, AOC is putting together some uh, material. We are creating a sample petition, uh, sample order, and uh, an information sheet, as well as information put on your websites and, and uh, process to go through this. We're also creating language related to uh, what to put on the record at sentencing, the statement you can use uh, at sentencing to include the notification to the defendant at that point in time. So we're putting together kind of a packet of materials here to, to make this as, as usable as possible. We're thinking there probably will be some rule changes related to this. Uh, as we're going through this statute, uh, there's some lack of clarity, if you will, in terms of how uh, a petition is gonna be handled. We're particularly looking at if a petition is incomplete, should it go before the judge and be denied if it's incomplete or just not enough information to determine the, the particular record? Or should it be just rejected and sent back to the defendant to be refiled? Part of the part of the statute requires that if the petition is denied by a judge, they have to wait three years to refile. And it could be, you know, there could be just a minor thing they forgot to leave out or just didn't give enough information to actually determine which record it is. So we may have to make a rule change related to that. We're looking at that right now in terms of if we want to update the rules on this. Uh, that's not yet determined. So we're we're trying to figure that out at this point. But um, be that as it may, hopefully in the next few months here, you'll start to see some material come out uh, from the AOC that will help you uh, know how to, what petition is, the process, uh, what an order would look like and all that kind of material. So hope to have that for you. And, and when I did say that what I would look at is a combined application to set aside with sealing the records, that's obviously for ones that haven't been set aside in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, just like with the marijuana expungements, we are going to have a lot of those issues that you've just identified uh, in terms of identifying the old cases. What, what do you do when um, the files have been purged? Uh, there, there will be a, a lot of issues. And Don, were you looking at putting that? I mean, there, there would have to be an application for ones that have already been set aside and then ones that have not yet been set, set aside. Actually, the way it's written, because we're going to DPS to get the general information notifying the, the, the prosecutor, we're not looking at much difference between those. Because even though a, a case might be set aside, 
it doesn't seem to have any impact on how DPS is storing the records or keeping them or the public uh, public outlook towards those records. It's just a notice that's been set aside. That's all that's out there once, you, once something is set aside. So it really doesn't make much impact. This, however, has a huge impact because what this will do is it'll keep the record out of any public uh, public view. So it'll make it, when, it when, when this case it's sealed, it actually takes it out of the public domain and keeps it in, in private. So while, while I, there is a significant difference, I don't think there's gonna have to be much impact if a, if a record's already set aside, all that really is is a notice that this, that this conviction's been set aside. There's nothing in terms of the storage of the record itself that is impacted by that, as far as we can tell, so. Well, there is an impact on the court in that we'd rather get one motion to do both than get that, two. Yeah, seconds. absolutely. In, term, in terms of the motion and the, and the order, you can absolutely do those together. But I, I was referring to if, if it's already been set aside, it's not gonna make any difference in terms of the petition for uh, sealing of the record. And this is a different issue from the sealing eviction records, which is currently before yes. the legislature. Uh, Very different. You, on, the, on the Friday <laughs> conference calls, there, there has been a lot of uh, discussion on that issue, and we don't know if that is going to, to pass or not, but this has already passed. This has passed. So, it has an effective date of December 31st, so. Yeah. All right, and other new legislation uh, that has already been adopted, um, motorcycle lane splitting. Uh, I actually had somebody do this the other day. That was not an emergency uh, effective date, but uh, this, this motorcycle rider decided to go ahead and, and uh, start taking advantage of that. Uh, and what that does allow is it does allow at, at a stoplight a motorcycle to um, zoom down the middle and pass everybody. That uh, the thought is that that is going to save motorcycle lives. Uh, we'll see. Uh, that that will go into effect on the general effective date, as will the juvenile representation bill. For those of you who are juvenile hearing officers. Uh, last year, the legislature actually uh, accidentally made a boo-boo and uh, made attorney representation mandatory for delinquent matters uh, for all juveniles, even those that were started by a citation uh, rather than by a petition in juvenile court. Uh, so um, strictly speaking, well, and then the Supreme Court passed a rule uh, which said that it had to be limited to those that were started um, by, by petition rather than by citation, uh, there were still some courts and, and uh, prosecutorial agencies who believe that that still applied in limited jurisdiction courts. Uh, so uh, we have been appointing attorneys in Maricopa County justice courts for delinquent matters, not for incorrigible matters. Well, that's been fixed. Uh, so as of the uh, general effective date, we will not need to be appointing attorneys again in uh, in those juvenile hearing officer courts for those matters that are started by a citation rather than a petition. A petition is like a um, a long form that we have for adults, um, but it, for, for juveniles, it's called a petition. This is a hot link, and uh, the legislation and the rule packages that I track you can find um, just by clicking on that and uh, 
and I and I do keep that relatively up to date when I remember to do it. Uh, I know there was also a victim bill that has passed uh, that that I will be adding to the list. And then there are a few pending rules that uh, I think we should be aware of. Uh, for our JPs, there is a rule petition for judicial elections. Uh, Gerald, you wrote that one. Why don't you tell us about that? It would allow some. It would it would amend the code of judicial conduct to allow some limited uh, political participation by judges that have to run in partisan races, which would pretty much only apply to, to JPs. It wouldn't apply to superior court judges because they don't really identify themselves as partisan in counties where uh, superior court judges are, are elected uh, directly. The probably most significant change is it would allow a justice of the peace to be a precinct committeeman or a precinct committee person. Um, right now, that's that's pretty clearly prohibited. It's it's possible, and I think many, if not most, JPs win partisan elections um, by essentially ignoring um, or having very very limited interaction with the political party process. Um, some JPs go to the legislative district meetings and give updates and are are very very involved, but sometimes they won't even let you in the room. If you're not a precinct committeeman, and it's kind of awkward, uh, I, I've been uh, almost yelled at uh, at Republican Party um, events where they say, well, you can't go in there. I'm like, I'm not going to try to vote. I just want to be in the room. Well, you can't be in the room. I'm, like, I'm an elected official. Can I be in the room? You know, and they're like, well, if you're an elected official, why aren't you a PC? And, it, and you get this spike. Um, kind of perpetually. So it would allow uh, JPs who want to be JPs to be um, precinct committeemen. It would also allow some uh, limited participation in, in terms of you'd be able to coordinate signature collection, uh, some with other candidates. You still couldn't um, endorse other candidates. You still can't be uh, a delegate to the national convention that we put that in a uh, comment that's or I added electoral college to the best of my knowledge no member no JP's ever tried to be a member of the electoral college but, um, that would be in the comment section as well so it was actually somewhat bipartisan more more Democrats in, in Maricopa County joined it, my petition as co-signers than Republicans did um, but if you want to look at it, it it's there. Uh, there's been no public comment on it so far. My best guess is the Supreme Court will not adopt it without appointing some type of committee to look at the issues first. Either that or they'll just reject it out of hand. There's been no uh, support for uh, allowing judges to be more political, um, which is what this would do in a, in a limited role, but that's what it would do. Thank you. And, and again, uh, these all of the pending rule packages here, you can just click on that to find that petition. You won't find the comments in there, 
um, but you will find the original petition there. Uh, R2151 is for the criminal rules regarding attorneys at, at initials. Um, it does allow for the, the new certified paraprofessional uh, uh, to represent. Uh, uh, 002 is regarding no-knock warrants. That doesn't, well, I hope we don't have many JPs out there issuing no-knock warrants, but this, this would put new restrictions on that. Uh, 003 is about probation release. Uh, 009 would uh, make it, you know, as we move forward into in the virtual world, uh, this would be uh, make put some rules and stuff and make it a little easier for electronic signatures. Uh, 0018 is regarding small claims, uh, and that one um, would limit uh, motions to uh, vacate and uh, uh, and forbid attorney representation for motions to vacate. Uh, the Maricopa bench did file a response to that one uh, that was primarily authored by Judge Williams, if you want to talk about that one. Okay, the, the petition came from uh, Mike Kellen, who's a, a very established small claims hearing officer out of Pima County. He teaches at small claims uh, training every time it's offered. And we went through uh, a fairly rigorous process to have small claims rules. There were points and counterpoints. And then for reasons I don't remember, the small claims rules were amended after that to look a lot like the rules of civil procedure. It's kind of like the rule 60C um, thing from the rules of civil procedure where you can file a motion to vacate or set aside the case for almost any reason. And he filed a rule change petition in response to that saying, hey, this is what small this is not what small claims were supposed to be. Small claims were supposed to be um, quick, easy uh, ways to settle your disputes. And if we allow this complex and, and there are no appeals from a small claims case, by allowing all these ways to attack a small claims judge, judgment, you've essentially created an appellate process. And our bench filed a, a response essentially agreeing with a lot of his points. And su we suggested some different language um, and that's basically where where it is. Right, and then uh, the last pending rule package that you should be aware of for the JPs is regarding evictions. And this does, in, uh, it it's, allows for motions to satisfy and vacate judgments for eviction matters. Uh, and it, one of the issues with this, and, and we saw this during the pandemic, is, is that people tend to forget that not all evictions are based on non-payment of rent. We actually do have evictions that are based on other reasons, including immediate evictions, which can be based on criminal threats and criminal activity. Uh, if it's an immediate eviction, the judgment may just include court costs and attorney's fees. 
Uh, and so one of the flaws of this petition is that someone who was evicted on an immediate for pulling a gun on the property manager, who then had a judgment of $112 against them, uh, could be forcibly evicted by the constable, then pay the judgment of 112 and then move to satisfy and vacate the judgment uh, so that no one would ever know that they were evicted for pulling a gun on their landlord. Uh, so the Maricopa County bench, through a, a uh, response that was primarily written by Judge Williams, filed a uh, filed a comment to that, Judge Williams. And I'm going to give you co-author credit now for this presentation today. So, <laughs> fair enough. The one of the problems we had during the uh, pandemic and during all the eviction moratoriums was that there wasn't the people kept talking about satisfied judgments and satisfied judgments normally means the defendant paid everything and it's satisfied uh, as we know eviction judgments have two parts they have a, a part that awards possession and they have a part that awards money damages and satisfaction of judgments never really been defined in that context so one of the things that our, the response did was suggest language that says, hey, if you want to go down this road, you needed to find satisfaction of judgment for eviction cases. So we proposed a satisfaction of judgment definition, and we proposed um, a variety of alternate language in the event that the Supreme Court wants to go down this road. Uh, we could, they could have it apply only if the basis for the judgment was non-payment of rent. They could go even further and say that the basis for the judgment was non-payment of rent and the judgment was paid by rental assistance funds. We gave them that option. We recommended that whatever the basis is, there be some type of balancing test where the judge would have the, the authority to determine whether or not the uh, vacating and essentially hiding the judgment from future landlords was warranted um, given whatever the facts of the particular case were. And like the examples of, of someone uh, pulling the gun on the property manager or uh, attempting to set fire to the residence or having a meth lab in the kitchen or something like that, maybe those are the types of things that future landlords would want to know about uh, prior to renting to someone. And so we had that balancing test that we suggested. I, I stole it from a statute I found in Minnesota that had something similar. So I don't know what the Supreme Court will do. We just said, hey, if you're going to go down this road, here's some things you should consider and here's some alternative language. We did take a position on policy by design. Um, this is a, a policy decision. My personal belief is that it, it should go through the legislature that if tenant advocates can't get it through the legislature, they shouldn't be able to adopt a court rule because they can't get something through the legislature. I don't think that's the purpose of court rules, but that's just my personal opinion. That's not in the in the response, but it's, it's kind of a complicated issue. Um, if you can't sleep some evening, you can call up the <laughs> The rule change petition, read all the comments and read this, but 
one of the reasons we felt it was appropriate to do a comment on it was everything so far on it had been just essentially a cheerleader for the proposed rule and none of them were considering the distinctions of the complications of, of eviction issues. And, and the cheerleading is with respect to only considering uh, evictions for non-payment of rent. None of the comments, you know, tackle the issue of what if it's not for non-payment of rent. Uh, you know, after the bench comment, I, I did look and there were a couple more comments from people saying what a great idea, uh, you know, so that people can get back on their feet and everything. And, and again, there are evictions not for non-payment of rent. Uh, so does anyone, uh, and uh, you can use the chat function too if you have any questions and you don't want to turn your microphone on. Do we have any questions about the pending rules? And if there are other pending rules that you think that we should be concerned about or following, please let me know. But those those were the ones that, uh, that I identified. And, and it sounds, Don, that we, we may get some for sealing records that we need to, to look out for. Um, in the future. So uh, our next topic is the new mit mitigation matrix. I assume uh, many of you may be here for this today. Uh, the AOC also did a new frequently asked question, and it just seems that the more questions we get answered, the more questions that arise. Uh, so this is always um, an, an interesting topic and a topic for discussion. And so I am going to turn it over to Don Jacobson. For those of you who don't know it, Don is a senior consultant at the AOC. He was a court manager in Flagstaff uh, for a number of years. Uh, he is just an outstanding resource, a very knowledgeable person. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that no one apparently ever really retires from the AOC. Um, so, uh, we're, we're Keep trying to get you back in. That's it. We're glad that, that you're still with us, Don. Uh, and did, did you want me to start with the chart? Um, this well, page, if, the if chart. you don't mind, Charles, uh, let me go ahead and just give you a little bit of background about what the change is, just kind of a general concept of what the changes are. And then right. maybe we could go through it and see if there's any questions about what, what those mean. Um, if you may recall, about a year ago, we sent out a memo related to the victim assessments uh, not being able to be mitigated. That came out after some uh, discussion with the legislature and looking at <clears throat> kind of the, the the role of assessments. What that did is it forced uh, AOC Legal to sit down and say, okay, how are we really dealing with these various elements in terms of you know fees, fines, surcharges, and so forth? Um, the real issue settled down on assessments. Uh, then last spring, the legislature passed some additional uh, some additional laws related to the mitigation of mandatory minimum fines. Basically, doing away with mandatory minimums. They're not really mandatory except for DUIs. Almost every other mandatory minimum fine can be can be uh, now mitigated. So what we did is we said, okay, it's time to really look at the chart again and uh, see where we want to go. We sat down with AOC Legal and they said, okay, the one issue that we really have never tackled was in relationship to those assessments. The assessments had specific language in statute on some of them that said, yes, you can mitigate. Others said, no, you couldn't. Numerous ones were, were kept silent. We kind of kept silent and just left it up to the judge on those that were silent. 
but the interpretation after the uh, after the decision to not allow mitigation of the victim assessments means we have to be more consistent in that. So they came out with an opinion saying, okay, we have to be consistent in our ability to mitigate assessments. If it is not specifically spelled out in statute that you can mitigate an assessment, AOSU legal opinion was that the judge has no authority to mitigate assessments. So what that meant was we had to go back and revisit the, uh, the matrix, work through it, and come to kind of some different conclusions about a few of those things. This has been the source of most of the questions, because now if we're not allowed to mitigate assessments at all, except for those that are statutorily allowed to be mitigated, then how does that impact the ongoing work and mitigation of those cases, particularly those that had already been uh, been sentenced, the person comes back in, they're trying to you know reinstate their lives, get things back together, and the judge wants to help them. But how do you deal with some of these outstanding financial obligations? So uh, that's where kind of the matrix came from. And that's where the Q&A came out of. There's a lot of questions about how this actually applies. So if you look at that matrix, you'll see that we tried to be as specific as possible, outlining every single assessment, surcharge, uh, uh, all those various things that we've outlined there and looking at each one of them and saying, okay, does it apply for mitigation, community restitution? Is it civil? Is it criminal? When does it apply and when does it not? This is our current take on the situation. I think everybody would look at this and agree that it's, it's, it's a convoluted situation at best. Nobody's looking at this saying, boy, this is nice, clean, neat, and easy. It is not. Uh, it is a very convoluted situation, and there's numerous numerous issues, I think, that we're still trying to resolve. That's why we did the Q&A. Hopefully, that, that would give some answer to it, but we know that there's there's more circumstances that are going to be be playing out in this. So uh, I really wanted to get a chance just to, to have some discussion, see if anybody had some specific questions. Uh, if you want to walk through it, we can do that, but I just wanted to open it up for, for any anything specific that maybe we can help guide towards rather than go through everything maybe there's some specifics here that uh, that people have concerns about and i know you guys aren't going to let me off that easy And I also know that Charles did a cheat sheet for you guys. I don't think it's in the it's in his presentation here, but I also know he did a little cheat sheet for you uh, that shows on specific ones when you can do criminal restitution and, and so forth. So uh, I know that's out there as well. The bottom line, with the exception of the victims, there it is. Thank you. Bottom line, if you look at this, is that with the exception of some of the, the victim assessments, uh, 12-16-01-16-04 and 12-16-09, uh, plus the 10% uh, clean election funds. Most of these, you know, again, there's some family offenses and some, you know, uh, I think that was a gang crime ass assessment down there. Most of these, you can either do mitigation or criminal restitution. There's only a few things, particularly, and the most common one is the victim assessments that, that uh, you'll see there in the first section. Those are the most common ones. Almost everything else you can do community restitution, or you can mitigate. Those are the two that kind of been, been hanging out there. 
there, there's been a lot of complaints about that because that $11 seems to be insurmountable to certain people and, and they want to just be able to get rid of it. But at this point, unless we can get new legislation that allows us to specifically, and, and honestly, it ain't going to happen. Uh, the legislature is not in the mood to do anything about victim restitution, victim assessments, and make any of that easier to go away. So they want to keep those victim assessments there. There's a large constituency that wants to keep those not mitigatable. And so uh, I think they're going to be there forever. So that $11 is going to be the main thing that I think you're going to see as kind of the, the one thing that will not go away. You can't do criminal rest, uh, community restitution and you can't do um, mitigation on those two. But you can see most of the other ones, except for some of the other ones, you know, the rag racing assessment, you can't do community restitution, some other things like that. But those are the common ones that you'll find on most, uh, on most criminal charges uh, that you have to deal with at $11. And, and I think that is what caused the, the most consternation because a, a lot of our judges are, are committed to veterans court and homeless court yeah. uh, where we can um, try to eliminate their fines, let them get a fresh start by having them do community restitution. And so for the portions that where you can't do community restitution, um, you, you can't get rid of the $11, and so you can't take care of everything at if, if we're going to do a stand, stand down for veterans um, or at homeless court. And, and I'm sorry to say, but that $11 is the difference between closing the file and, and not closing the file. And yeah. we do have people who are never going to be able to, to pay that. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I've any... always been kind of hopeful, Charles, on this, that, that there'll be some entity out there because $11 is, you know, well, well, for individuals, certain individuals, it's a big roadblock. But for some organizations that are trying to help veterans and stuff, it's not a huge one. I'm always hopeful that somewhere out there, there's an organization that's going to actually step up to the plate and say, if this is something that's actually blocking somebody that we're trying to help and do so, they provide the $11 to the defendant to come in and just pay it. And get it off the get it off the table. I don't know of any organizations that are doing that or willing to do that. I keep hoping that some will step up to the plate and figure out that this is a good way to just for a small amount of money help somebody out in a tremendous way. But I haven't seen that happen yet. I, I hadn't I'd never thought of that, but a, a lot of American Legion posts have discretionary type funds for that. A, a service officer can give, I think, up to maybe five hundred dollars to somebody. Yeah. And it um so it may be just a matter of communication um yeah yeah and so i'll i'll pass that on i, I think veterans courts even have grant funds that that they could use and homeless court maybe could access similar type funds but um yeah those treatment or problem solving courts are usually geared toward community service um anyone who's volunteered in the homeless court knows they have this almost insurmountable community service obligation. You know, you know, oh yeah, he did 250 hours of community service and you're like, you're kidding. Uh, that that would be much harder than paying a $200 fine or whatever, but they, but they complete it and it, it closes the case file. So that's that's something I'll look into because that's, if, if, if we're down to $11 to close the case file, 
and there's someone other than the judge that would create an ethics yeah. problem. Yeah. Obviously, the court the can't do this. The court, yeah, the court can't establish the program to pay the eleven bucks. But I think you're right, Gerald, in, in that if if we if if I think if it's known out there, and maybe that's you're maybe you're absolutely right in that. It just it's not known that this is what this is really a big stumbling block to people. And if, if it becomes known that $11 helps this person get their life back, that I think there's organizations out there that might step up to the plate. So maybe communication yeah. on it would be a good thing. We can't obviously do it. It's not our thing, but uh, I, I, it's just out there. We do have to be concerned about the gift clause, but if it's a, a non-governmental organization, an NGO, right. NGO um, and uh, one, the one that right, and we're not soliciting it. Obviously, we can't solicit it. It's not something we can go out and and request. Uh, but you know, I, I think it's it's not insurmountable for for something to happen on it. Yeah, the other interesting thing, and and when I, I did this summary, I mean, there were a couple of provisions that that said um, they're they're not mitigatable except. Um, they're reduced as the base fine is reduced, and so I did consider that mitigatable. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I uh, did, you know, left that off the chart and, and assumed that that was uh, taken. And and our co-host John Peck has lost his internet. He's hoping to uh, to reconnect. Um, what what I also thought was interesting is the DUI fines. Uh, you know, because we we basically have been treating this as the DUI, um, DUI fine and assessments were not mitigatable, uh, but for everything except the 10% uh, surcharge, you can do community restitution. Now, I don't know that somebody wants, you know, th these DUI fines tend to be all oh, about, you know, 1800 bucks, uh, and that's a lot of community restitution. Um, but that 10% is is the only part of that that we can't get rid of there. That that's correct. And the reason for that is the the way the way they wrote the statute in the Clean Election Fund. And and we had we met with the the Clean Election folks when this was going through uh, legislature, and they were very adamant. Uh, and the legislature was very clear that this is this is something that that, that we'll have to do. Now the the way it's written though is that the clean election fund is that 10% on the amount imposed and collected. Uh, and so you, if, if on anything other than the DUI, you've got the ability as you do with other percentage ones to reduce that dollar amount, thus the percentage stays the same, but if you reduce the dollar amount is zero, 10% of zero is zero. So, you know, it, it goes away too. But um, the, the reality is, is that on the DUIs, you're going to be kind of stuck with that 10% uh, of that. And that's going to be, that's going to be a hit, obviously, for the individual. But uh, that's, that's, there's only, there's only so much we can do on that one. And then um, for domestic violence offenses, uh, if, if we've got veterans and it's a domestic violence offense, that's going to be a uh, $61, not, not 11 that's true. Uh, and then um, is interesting. Uh, the time payment fee can not be mitigated, but you can do community restitution for criminal. And then for civil, uh, you can't mitigate and you can't 
do community restitution for that $20 time payment fee. Uh, that is correct. And I know that seems totally strange and unusual, but there are two statutes controlling those uh, uh, differently in the, in the criminal side, uh, 12116, uh, 12116A, uh, you know, basically says you can't mitigate that for either civil or criminal. But if you go to um, uh, 13824A, you can actually mitigate there that it's not limited. It's not listed in those things that you can't limit, uh, can't mitigate. So you can actually see there that it's, uh, that you can mitigate it. So uh, because it lists the things you can't, and if it's not listed, then you can. That's kind of how we've looked at that. So it does create that discrepancy between the civil and the, and the criminal there, but, well, you know, everybody knows here the legislature is not written as a, as a whole. It's written in piecemeal, so you take what you get. And uh, Don, a lot of courts do have cap programs um, for fines that are in FAIR. How difficult is it going to be to pull something out of FAIR to, to institute a cap program? It should not be difficult at all. In fact, what this does is because, you know, because now you've got a much broader sweep of the various fines and so forth that you can mitigate, I think this will be a big boon to the cap programs. In fact, one of the things we we tried, uh, just just as a as a little story here, one of the things we did as an experiment is we tried to do uh, a cap program with those coming out of prison to reinstate their driver's license and get them on payment fines. We had very mediocre success because at the time we did it, and this was a few years back, we had very limited mitigation authority. Now that the mitigation authority has been expanded so much. We're thinking that maybe time to revisit that and look at uh, expanding the CAP programs, uh, particularly to those maybe coming out of prison would be a good thing. So we're, we're having discussions uh, with the Department of Corrections and, and seeing where we want to go with that. It's actually been uh, piloted several places, so we might see how that goes. John, this is Mike Paris-Condola from the City of El Mirage. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Mike? Good. Hey, I have a general question. I really appreciate AOC's work effort and uh, everything they've done regarding this mitigation uh, chart and information. Just a question. Have you considered uh, adding when the information went into effect? For instance, we have old cases, uh, the, the $9 and $2. What cases do those apply to? My understanding was the $9 uh, went into effect in 2014, if I'm remembering correctly. And then $2 was around 200 or 2018 or 19. But certainly as we're trying to clean up older files, uh, it would be helpful to understand when we need to look at this nine, this two, right. uh, the D, even the DUI assessments, which yeah. probably over 15 years ago. You're absolutely right, and 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 here's the thing. I mean, uh, the only only items that actually apply are what are in force when the sentence is imposed. The nice thing is about you can mitigate anything now, no matter how old it is. So the mitigation has no time frame in which you have to work with, but the imp imposition of the various fines, fees, surcharges, and everything else do. 
So if you've got an old case that what originally did not have the nine or the two dollars, the eleven bucks imposed, you don't have to worry about it. You don't impose it now. You don't reimpose uh, assessments that were not enforced when the sentence was actually imposed. So there's nothing you have to do in relationship to that. You don't have to. They're not retroactive uh, in terms of that. So uh, you only have to deal with what is currently on the uh, uh, on the sentence. And you have now authority, even if when it was imposed, you wouldn't have, the, have had the authority to mitigate, you do now. So it doesn't matter when it was imposed on the mitigation side, you can go ahead and, and mitigate away, unless it's one of those specifics. Now we do have a, a surcharge guide that outlines kind of all the changes in the dates uh, and that surcharge guide is available at the AOC, from the AOC website. Uh, I don't have that, that particular uh, URL available off the top of my head, sorry about that. But if you search the AOC website, you'll see that the, there's a surcharge guide that will give you all the dates and the changes that took place historically uh, in terms of the fines, the, the, in terms of surcharges, uh, assessments and fees and all that stuff that kind of comes in there. So there's an historical record there in the surcharge guide and that'll tell you the dates and the times in which it happened. But again, that's about the imposition of the particular uh, assessment. It's not about uh, the mitigation of it because now you can mitigate anything no matter when it was imposed if it's allowed. Understood. I appreciate it. Uh, Charles, do you know when uh, the nine and the two went into effect off the top of your head? I don't. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to look at the surcharge guide. I just tried to find it quickly and wasn't able to to find um, find it, but um, we can follow up on that and, and see if we can find that. I appreciate it, gentlemen and everyone. Thank you. All right, do we have um, any other questions for uh, Don? And, and uh, Judge Peck has rejoined us. I'm not sure if his camera is working, but his volume is so. Uh, Judge, while, while you were offline, we did delegate to you the task of uh, rewriting all of the frequently asked questions and everything on surcharges and mitigation. So um, I'm sorry, I can't uh, hear you, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can watch this. All right, any uh, any other questions for Don? Thanks for coming in on a Saturday. Not a problem. Uh, I will find that uh, before I leave you guys today, I will find that uh, URL for the surcharge guide, put that in the chat. Uh, and then um, you guys will have that there, okay? So let me see if I can find that for you so you can all access that, all right? Thank you, Don, very much. All right, thanks, you guys. And before we uh, go on to the perils of probation, um, I did send out the new plan B, and I do say new because what had been sent out before uh, was missing. Page. Uh, and the page that it was missing turned out to be pretty important because that was the one that pertains to us. Uh, so the, the missing page is here. Uh, and it's so for those of you who aren't aware, the, the plan B is um, for virtual appearances going forward. And this, this was recommendations of the plan B committee that um, was chaired uh, by Judge Fama. Uh, I believe. And um, 
we did, we did have a couple of limited jurisdiction judges who, who did participate in that. And so these are the presumptions are on what are supposed to uh, be done virtually in the future uh, and what should be done in person. And, and again, um, the original version, which was missing a page, just had the rules of criminal procedure. And it didn't have a lot of remote uh, stuff in there. The missing page uh, is for limited jurisdiction proceedings involving criminal misdemeanor charges and also our civil traffic and juvenile hearing officer proceedings. And so as you can see from this list, there is an awful lot more uh, that can be done remotely. Uh, and the why I did want to talk about this today um, is uh, possibly as soon as next week, the Chief Justice is going to cut an administrative order uh, that is going to adopt these recommendations. And then the Chief Justice is going to put, on, put it on each superior court presiding judge to cut administrative orders for our courts, for the justice courts and for the city courts. Uh, so um, you might want to start that dialogue with your superior court presiding judge with respect to these. If, if there are things that, that you don't agree with or um, that, that you uh, want to see different. And, you know, I, I know a, a lot of us would like to go back to the way things were. Uh, I don't know that that is an option. I, I, I do like to say um, we, we need to learn to love our new virtual reality. Uh, and uh, as you can see from the missing page, an awful lot of our uh, proceedings uh, can will presumably be done virtually or should presumably be done virtually. And the page that we did have before uh, did include uh, protective order, evictions, small claims, and justice court rules of civil procedure. Um, for evictions, that initial appearance set, that was taken out of our hands by the legislature. That is also in uh, the rules of procedure for eviction actions, because um, uh, the statute only applied to justice court um, they forgot about um, superior court evictions. Uh, so the Supreme Court did put it in the Supreme Court rule uh, in, in the rules of procedure for eviction actions as well, so that um, it applies in superior court as well. Uh, there, there, and, and this is uh, one of my little uh, concerns here under protective order procedure. Uh, it, you know, it's wonderful that a contested protective order hearing is in person um, and everything else is presumably remote. My concern is a motion to dismiss by the plaintiff. As you know, we are required to check their ID. Uh, we're also supposed to make that determination that they are not being coerced. Uh, and it, one of the things we look at is, did, did you come to court um, alone today and make sure, you know, if you, if you came to court with the defendant, send the defendant out of the room uh, to ensure that they're not being coerced. If we're going to do that motion to dismiss remotely, uh, 
it, it, it's a little better if we're going to do it with with a with a camera with a virtual because they can at least hold up their ID. Um, but you know the concern if you're going to do that telephonically is the defendant could be sitting there pointing a gun at the plaintiff who is telling you, oh yeah, yeah, no, this this is this is my choice. I, I want this dismissed. Um, so I, you know, if if it were up to me, I would still require a motion to dismiss by the plaintiff to be in person, uh, so that we can check ID and we can ensure that it is in fact voluntary and not being coerced. Uh, do we have any other questions or comments or concerns about Plan B? I have. Can you? You. Um, John, you can go first. No, Joe, go ahead. Okay. My my big heartburn is on a presumption of jury uh, a presumption of bench trials being remote. Um, I think we should be kicking and screaming on that. If, if you want to have remote trials, great. Um, if, if you want to have, but the, the notion that bench trials are presumed to be remote is is a very very bad idea. Um, bench trials. And Gerald, let me just stop you there because you are referring to civil bench trials. Right. Okay. Which have lots and lots of exhibits. Criminal trials have very few exhibits by comparison and and it, there's apparently an agreement that those should be uh in person but they want both civil bench trials and civil eviction trials with the presumption that they be um remote <clears throat> also the on the criminal side for some reason they flipped in my opinion what what should be the case they they presume criminal change of pleas are going to be remote, but orders to show cause should be in person. I, I would I would invert those. Uh, that we it's it's doable, but often difficult um, to do a, a, a criminal change of plea when the defendant's not there. You have to depend on paperwork getting to you, and then they have to do a a payment plan and all, all this other stuff. It's so much easier if they just walk in, you can hand them the paper, they can apply for the payment plan, and they leave. Um, the presumption that those should be remote is going to make every plea a, a telephonic change of plea, and that's, that's going to create significantly more work for the court. In contrast, an order to show cause is, oh, you missed your pre-trial conference date. You missed this. You didn't, we don't have proof that you went to a victim impact panel. You know, why haven't you paid your fine? All those kind of things are, okay, well, here's your new court date. Here's your new, you know, can you get your classes done by this day? Can you at least enroll in your classes by this day? That stuff screams, do it over the phone. Um, so I, I don't know who prepared the chart. I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but I'm, I'm concerned that they may not have a complete understanding of, of what a justice court or a municipal court does with an order to show cause and what a, a hassle it is to do a criminal change of plea telephonically. 
And uh, Charles, this is Judge Law, Alicia Lawler from the Mesa Municipal Court, and I couldn't agree more with Gerald. Um, you know, one of the, the great benefits to the defendants, especially with order to show cause hearings, which typically take between two and 10 minutes at, at, at the most, is that they don't have to take a morning off work, get a babysitter, park. Um, these are easy issues to resolve for our court over the phone. So I agree completely, and that's why I chimed in. And the great thing about this is, is this is um, recommended. There's nothing to stop a judge from scheduling their orders to show cause virtually. And, and, and actually, I agree with that. You know, I think maybe they were thinking back to the old days where you had an order to show cause and you might actually order somebody to be taken into custody. Um, I don't know that we really do that anymore. I mean, most of the orders to show cause are, well, we're going to reorder your payment plan or reorder your counseling. Um, and yes, that can be done virtually. I mean, I, I don't think we have people showing up for orders to show cause and then drag them out of the court in chains. Uh, so there, yeah, there's nothing to stop you from going ahead and, and scheduling those virtually. The change of plea, um, you know, certainly if you're going to require fingerprints, it, it's much nicer to have them there in person. Uh, and yeah, you know, and it can be frustrating when you don't get the paperwork back on a timely basis. Um, if, if you want that change, then you're going to need to start leaning on your superior court presiding judge that when um, they cut that order, then uh, they, you know, that take into consideration that that perhaps should be up to the discretion of the judge as to whether to do that in person or virtually. I, I know another concern, um, and, and now I can't find it, is, is I was under the impression that it for specialty courts or treatment courts, it required in person. And I know that um, we, we had concerns about that, but now I can't find that um, in what, where exactly it was in uh, in here that it has to be uh, virtual or, or in person. Uh, did, did someone else recall that or do we have any other? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, Judge Peck, you still have a pending comment. I, I do. So you can look for that while I just mention this. There were consolidated in Pima County had a bench meeting yesterday and Judge Bergen, uh, the, this, the recommendation, the report came up. A uh, few, few of the judges were familiar with it, but Judge Bergen stressed that it was purely a recommendation. So I guess my question is, uh, are we understanding that the chief is going to make specific requirements in his administrative order or is he going to, is the administrative order going to ask for the presiding judges of each superior court to take care of the specifics? I believe the latter, and, and we'll see when the chief judges, a chief justice's order comes out next week um, exactly how it's phrased, but I believe it's going to be more than recommendation. I believe it's going to be you cut administrative orders and set some ground rules and, and that 
And the ground rules might just be minimums, like at a minimum, we want these to be virtual. Um, we're we're going to, what I'm saying is that it's, it's a little, right now it's just aspirational and, um, and that may be changing as to there may be more mandatory things coming uh, coming along. Okay, thanks. All right, any other questions or comments? All right, and and and, and I'm looking through the whole thing, and, and I don't see the specialty courts, so it might just be the order to show cause concern um, that where people believe that that was going to uh, apply to specialty courts. Do we have any mechanism to provide feedback or are we just supposed to kind of wait and see what happens and then say, hey, this is a problem, what you, what you ordered us to do or you know, because everything we're going to don't worry this don't worry this is just a suggestion. Uh, by the way, there's going to be an admin order next week that makes it mandatory, but don't worry about that. You know, I <laughs> having lots of experience with admin orders during the eviction moratoriums. Um, I, I tend to worry sometimes about what they're going to say, but I do, do we have any? feedback loop on this or it's just we we know what's best for you um and and that's one of the reasons i did want to talk about this today is i i think that you know each of us should reach out to our um presiding jp or presiding um city court magistrate who can then reach out to their presiding superior court judge with feedback and um and yeah and um i agree that you know at least for orders to show but then again you know if if the order says that orders to show cause are are, are to be in person i don't think that would stop you from doing that virtually i think it's to set the minimum of this is what you'll need to uh do virtually and you can go beyond that if you want Any other questions, comments, or concerns about virtual appearances? You know, and, and keep in mind, too, uh, the, the legislature made that change on eviction proceedings and then had a bill that would have extended that to all um, civil proceedings in justice court. Uh, they did drop that uh, on, in part on the understanding that we were going to be more proactive in um, having virtual appearances. Uh, there's always the risk that if the legislature doesn't believe that we are proceeding promptly enough that um, they might go ahead and uh, <laughs> start tying our hands on stuff. So. Just keep that in mind. And uh, in the chat box, Don Jacobson did say um, his apologies. It appears that the surcharge guide is currently being updated and is not currently available online. We will follow up with that. And, and when that does become available, we will um, make that available. All right, so anything else before we continue with the perils of unsupervised probation? 
right. Uh, and um, this presentation I did for our justice court, uh, we do have unsupervised probation um, for as long as I've been the judicial education officer for the justice courts. I have been telling people, please don't put people on unsupervised probation. Uh, it, it accomplishes very little. And as you see, as we move along, um, it can actually tie your hands. Uh, for those of you, your cities or some of the smaller counties that may actually have probation officers or, or probation, or your county attorney or city attorneys do follow up on probation, um, and this may not apply to you. This this is really for unsupervised probation and the concerns of what can happen. So we'll start with the history, what changed, why it matters, what to do if probation expired, and what to do instead of probation. So again, most, much of this presentation does not apply to bad check probation, which did have the county attorney monitoring and filing petitions to revoke. At least that happened in Maricopa County. Uh, that funding is gone, so I, I'm, I'm not sure if at this point they're still doing uh, petitions to revoke for bad checks or whether that falls into the unsupervised probation again. Uh, why have we traditionally used unsupervised probation? Uh, and that is until a few years ago, we were not authorized to sentence to counseling, community restitution or education except for those offenses that actually required counseling or education. Um, so for example, before the statute was changed, I had a reckless driving uh, defendant and um, I wanted to sentence him to defensive driving school in addition to a fine. I actually had to put him on probation to order defensive driving school because the statute at that time said you you do a fine um, or probation, a fine and or probation. So again, the problem for unsupervised is if you don't have anyone monitoring. And again, if if you do have prosecutors or probation department who are monitoring filing petitions, then some of this or a lot of this may not apply. So what changed back uh, in 2018, uh, the, uh, it now provides that a court may sentence a defendant convicted of a misdemeanor to perform community restitution or to education or to treatment without having to place the defendant on probation. So that was not the case before August 3, 2018. It became the case on August 3, 2018. And in addition, 13717 was added, uh, and it did require the courts to determine and fix the number of community restitution hours required, and the term of education or treatment cannot exceed the term of probation for that class of misdemeanor. Uh, the court shall determine the program of educational treatment and remember for DUI and DV, those are required by statute. And why does this matter? The statutory and rule frameworks are essentially written with felonies and supervised probation in mind. They really do not consider unsupervised probation. You know, we in limited jurisdiction courts are so often the afterthought um, that they, they really don't think about us. And why this is a concern is if you have a fine and you put someone on probation, 
that fine becomes a condition of probation. So if a defendant is sentenced to pay a fine, restitution, penalty assessment, incarceration, cost, or surcharge is also sentenced to probation, the court shall make the payment of the fine, restitution, penalty assessment, incarceration, cost, or surcharge a condition of probation. And that is shall. That is mandatory. So if you have a fine and you put someone on probation, that fine is a term of probation. Why is that? a problem because probation expires. So unless terminated sooner, probation may continue for the following periods. And, and you know, we should have these memorized uh, for heart, by heart, but, you know, three to one years and five years for DUI. So it has an expiration date. So the fine, payment of the fine, if you put someone on probation, has an expiration date. And restitution can be extended um, if uh, the court has continued pro um, before the termination or expiration of probation, may extend the period uh, for not more than two years. So um, for a misdemeanor uh, uh, probation period, that can be extended to five years for non-DUI uh, for restitution. And here are the calculation of the periods of probation. Uh, if the court determines that a defendant violated a condition of the defendant's probation, but reinstates probation, the period between the date of the violation and the date of restoration is not computed as part of the period of probation. It is determined that the defendant is, if it is determined that the defendant is not a violator, there is no interruption of the period. So you do have to make a determination uh, to do that, and that does require active participation of the prosecutor or a probation department. So um, the running of the period of probation shall cease during the unauthorized absence of the defendant from the jurisdiction or from any required supervision. Well, the required supervision doesn't help if we don't have supervision. Uh, and the running of a period of probation shall cease during the, the period from the filing of the petition to revoke probation. And again, that's only helpful if there's been a, uh, a petition to revoke probation filed. All right, so why not just file a petition to revoke? Uh, because under the criminal rules, the probation officer or the state may petition the court to revoke probation. So the, the court can't just decide to revoke probation itself. And revoking probation does require petition arraignment, violation hearing, and disposition hearing. There is no provision in law for a court to enforce probation on its own. Uh, and Rule 27.8C2 does, uh, as part of that disposition, uh, allow the court to continue probation. But again, that requires a petition arraignment, violation hearing, and disposition hearing. And for expired probation cases, and, and this is the statute that causes agita because it's just entitled jurisdiction. There is no warning that all of a sudden we have something called a criminal restitution order, uh, but guess what? All of a sudden we have something called a criminal restitution order. So under 13.805C, at the time the defendant completes the defendant's period of probation, 
the court shall enter both a criminal restitution order in favor of the state for unpaid balance, if any, of any fines, costs, incarceration cost fees, surcharges or assessments, um, and a criminal restitution order in favor of each person entitled to restitution for the unpaid balance of any restitution. So not only is there not any warning that this is here, that a criminal restitution is under the statute entitled jurisdiction, but they gave it a terrible name of criminal restitution order because every time you mention this, somebody automatically thinks, well, a, a victim has a right to a restitution lien. And you're absolutely right, the state or a victim can request a restitution lien, and that rest, restitution lien is in 13806. That is different from a criminal restitution order, which must, shall uh, be filed in favor of the state for the unpaid balance of any fine cost, incarceration cost, fees, surcharges, or assessments imposed. So um, when probation expires, if there's any unpaid fine, you are supposed to do a criminal restitution order. Um, not leave the file open for all of eternity and do orders to show cause. Um, that fine became a became a term of probation, and when probation expired, the court is supposed to do a criminal restitution order, and that is shale. That that isn't optional. And all of this makes sense for superior court, where you do have a probation department where, that are going to file. Uh, petitions to revoke. Um, and so they can just go ahead and do a CRO at the end of, pr of probation. Uh, it doesn't make sense if you've got unsupervised probation that was allowed to expire because no one was watching. Uh, so what is a criminal restitution order that can be recorded and is enforceable as any civil judgment? And a criminal restitution order does not expire until paid in full. And that's all still in 13.805. And again, this is different from a criminal restitution lien. The criminal restitution lien is filed by the state or a victim. And, and I've heard horror stories where a victim has tried to file a criminal restitution lien and has been told by limited jurisdiction courts that we don't do that. Well, we're required to do that. Uh, and that is a different statute. All right, so now if you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh my God, how many expired probation cases do I have with unpaid fines? Can I still go ahead and do a criminal restitution order? Uh, it might not be too late. There is a case called State versus Uncofer um, where the court said, you know, it might not be unreasonable to go back uh, for a case that closed 12 years ago and um, impose a CRO. So, you know, at least... <laughs> For the last 12 years, you can go back and, and still do a CRO. All right, and so I, once again, for those of us who don't have supervised probation or, or don't have um, prosecutors who are watching uh, for in filing petitions to revoke, what do you do instead of probation? You just sentence. So again, as of um, August of 2018, uh, you can, sentence a defendant convicted of misdemeanor to perform community restitution or to education or to treatment without 
putting the defendant on probation. And um, 805A1 allows the court to retain jurisdiction until court-ordered payments are made in full. So if you did not put the person on probation, you can leave the file open for all of eternity uh, and or schedule orders to show cause. If you put the, if you order to find and put the person on probation, once probation expired, you shouldn't be doing that. All right, and if a defendant does not comply, if they're not on supervised probation, uh, the court is must promptly notify the state. I'm not sure we've been doing that, um, but, uh, and, you know, again, for those jurisdictions where the prosecutors don't care if the defendant is not paying a fine, uh, but we are to promptly notify the state. And uh, Rule 26.12C3, court action upon a failure of a defendant to pay a fine or comply with court orders uh, and fails to respond to a court notice informing the defendant of the consequences. The court may issue an arrest warrant or a summons and require the defendant to show cause why he or she should not be held in contempt. Uh, and that um, a prosecutor who requests the warrant must state the reason for the issuance of the warrant rather than a summons. And then 13810, uh, the consequences of non-payment of fines, the court on motion of the prosecuting attorney or on its own motion shall require the defendant to show cause why the defendant's default should not be treated as contempt and may issue a summons or a warrant of arrest for the defendant's appearance. Uh, believe it or not, we can actually even garnish for unpaid fines. So after a hearing on an order to show cause or after a hearing on a petition to revoke probation, the court may issue a writ of criminal garnishment for any fine, surcharge, fee, assessment, restitution, or incarceration costs. Um, that'll start getting people's attention uh, if, if we wanted to do that. And there's more on garnishment. And so a final thought, humor, and, and I did keep saying for all of eternity, uh, this, this uh, cartoon was published on April 2nd and the guy thought he was being funny. Uh, and he, so, so he says, the judge ruled that he had to serve out his full sentence no matter what. Uh, and you can see that there's, there's a little prison gate around the grave. Why is this not funny? because that is exactly Arizona law. Uh, on a convicted defendant's, um, uh, a convicted defendant's death does not abate the defendant's criminal conviction or sentence of imprisonment uh, or any restitution, fine, or assessment imposed by the sentencing court. Uh, that is Arizona law. So I actually emailed uh, the author of this cartoon and told him that uh, you might have thought you were being funny, but here's the Arizona statute, and that actually is the law. Uh, so um, under this law, uh, the Department of Corrections would have to house dead people uh, for the remainder of their sentence. Uh, and um, they, if, if you're actually sentenced to two life sentences, uh, then they'd have to wait till you're resurrected and um, and then die a second time, uh, although then you have the legal question of is a zombie alive? 
Uh, so, uh, Gerald, how do you answer that? How, if, if you're sentenced to two life sentences, how do you how do you complete that sentence? Oh, now your now your microphone's not working. No, still not working. Charlie, I've got a question. Yes, I have a question while Gerald's working on his mic. Um, the ridiculousness of this side. Does the, how is, does one go after the estate? Does one file a lien? What happens? And, and, and that's, this statute, and, and, and keep in mind that if you didn't put the, put the person on probation, that jurisdiction doesn't end until the, pay, the fine is paid. Um, yeah, well, yes, uh, presumably we should be have hiring attorneys to be filing claims to research and file claims in probate court to collect unpaid fines. You know, and I could understand because, you know, following this presentation, you're going to all want to contact a legislator and say, please fix this mess. Uh, yeah, I can understand restitution not expiring with the death of the person and, and you know, uh, you can go after the estate for restitution, but do you really want to tell a grandchild that your grandfather got a speeding ticket 30 years ago, um, surprise, <laughs> and you're going to pay off that speeding ticket? Um, but yeah. that is what the statute says. I mean, presumably, we should be filing uh, claims in probate court. I, I know that there was one court in the valley, a, a city court that changed their warnings um, to defendants to say that their their fines do not expire with their death. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that. I mean, I, I you know, the whole point of, of this, you know, is to say this is ridiculous. Um, I'm just telling you this is what the statute currently says. And, and the step, because I know that many courts will go ahead, get the death certificate and close the file and suspend the fine. And the statute says death does not abate the fine. The sugar. All right, Jill, did you get your uh, microphone working? Oh. Nope. I don't know why it just cut out. All right, so we, we've left Gerald speechless. Does anyone have uh, any other last words? That at, at this point, we are at the roundtable part, uh, so we can talk about any other questions, issues, concerns that you have. All right, did you all think this was worthwhile or no? Charlie, I thought I found it very helpful. I mean, especially the discussion uh, about uh, uh, probation. It's uh, something that I've never really considered. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, I didn't realize what the basis for it was. And uh, I appreciate hearing your thoughts on it. And, and those are my thoughts. I, you know, your, your superior court might not be too happy if you want to start filing CROs. 
I'm not telling you to file CROs. I'm just telling you what the, our statutes currently say. And what our statutes currently say is if that you have a fine and probation, but fine becomes a term of probation, and when termination is, pro, is, is terminated, you are required to file a CRO, huh. which is different than a restitution lien. So don't put people well, on I probation. Just... I have to say, I found that really helpful also, Charlie. All right, and any other la uh, last questions, uh, Mike? I was just gonna say, I found it very helpful as well. Thank you for letting me know about this, including me. All right, and uh, assuming all the technology worked, we'll go ahead and, and uh, put this up on YouTube. Gerald, did you have any last thoughts? You can put them in the chat box. I, I don't, I don't know if my microphone works right. Oh, okay. No, I, no, I don't have any final thoughts. Thank you. Did, did you have a thought on the zombies? Well, I, my personal faith, I don't believe in reincarnation, so I'm not sure how all that would work. <laughs> all right. Uh, this, this was our first attempt at, at one. We, we did it on Saturday morning so that unless you're actually doing jail court, there, you, you didn't have a, a court docket that interfered. If Saturdays don't work, maybe we can do a happy hour uh, roundtable in the future. But um, send your thoughts to John. And I'll mention that Sherwood is the, is the president of the Magistrate Association. Uh, so send your thoughts to John or to Sherwood or to me. Uh, and thank you all for taking some time out on your Saturday to join us. Could, Charlie, could I also mention that uh, Sherwood is sending out a, a SurveyMonkey questionnaire um, to sort of generate some ideas for a hot topics session we'll be doing at the uh, AMA JP conference in uh, September. So I'm not sure what, I don't know if it's gone out yet, but if you could all respond that we would we would appreciate it it will be going out today as a matter of fact john thank you thanks sherwood all right have a good day um everybody thanks, thanks charlie, charlie.